In this episode, I'd love to talk about perimenopause. Perimenopause is a period of time, roughly somewhere between four to 12 years, and it's in the lead up to the menopause. Now, the menopause is technically a year after your last menstrual period. So I'm talking about the four to 12 years before that. And I'd like to give you some background on what's happening hormonally behind all of the symptoms and the sometimes frustrating and unexpected experiences that perimenopause can bring with it. Of course, I want to also talk about the psychological aspects of perimenopause and just give you some tools and some tips, some insights that hopefully can help you navigate this sometimes difficult process and and phase in our lives and shed some light on the symptoms that can occur in perimenopause. So that's what this episode is all about. Hi, I'm Sue Lindsay, and this is the Well Woman podcast. I've worked with countless women and teenage girls over the years as a natural women's health clinician. And I know how hard it can be to get the help you need to overcome hormonal imbalance, infertility, and perimenopausal symptoms. I bring together my expertise in natural medicine and nutrition with insights from experts in the field of women's wellness to help you get the information you need to make a real difference to your health. This truly unique podcast combines the wisdom of the East with the clinical know-how of modern naturopathy, offering a holistic approach to empower and inspire women just like you on the path to optimized health. I'm your trusted guide as you navigate your hormone healing journey, giving you support, accountability, and guidance along the way. Thanks for listening in, and don't forget to follow or subscribe. It's time to nourish you with Well Woman. Our hormonal journey, believe it or not, actually begins when we're still in utero, in the uterus of our mothers, and we start to secrete our hormones. So this could be estrogen, it could be follicle-stimulating hormone, it could be stress hormones and things like that. So we're already starting this process of secreting hormones. I guess in a way this tells you that in terms of our primal bodies, the bodies that we were in before we came out of the before we came out of our mums into the world that we are really hormonal beings and hormones can be a wonderful signal sign it's the body's voice to tell us what's happening in our internal landscape i like to think about perimenopause as a time when women can feel quite out of control of the hormonal changes that are occurring in a physiological level absolutely we wonder what is going on why am i so tired all the time why am i hungry all the time Why am I angry and irritable? Why can't I sleep normally anymore? So there's so many things that can occur in this life phase that can be hormonally driven. Psychologically, we can start to feel that beyond our own control, we are becoming distinct and separate from the fertile versions of ourselves. And therein, you know, you have all of these societal constructs around women and women's identity the preferences for youth and vigor and fertility in women. And I think that these sort of cultural norms, they need to be questioned. It's such a shame that we have this idealization of women and women's bodies. That we come into perimenopause, so we're not only battling with physiologically what's happening, but we're also battling with cultural views and perspectives on women and women's beauty and women's wellness. And at the same time, we're trying to acclimatize ourselves to just being in a a body that feels a little bit different, a body that sometimes is changing before our very eyes, also a mind. So mentally and cognitively, our brains are going through a recalibration process. Our brains can't utilize energy the way they did before the perimenopause period. So during perimenopause, We have to develop what is known as metabolic flexibility and metabolism is all about how you take in your nutrients and then you convert your nutrients into energy. So during the perimenopause, our brains are trying to function in a different way. They're utilizing energy differently, fats differently. We're getting uh, evidence of this in terms of the fat deposition in our bodies and our bodies are handling carbohydrates quite differently as well than they would have done so previously. We're also getting really uh, crazy changes in appetite. 
There was a study I looked at recently where the researchers had identified that the hunger hormone ghrelin in perimenopausal women was somewhere around the mark of seven to eight times the amount of ghrelin in premenopausal women. So it goes part of the way to explaining why in perimenopause we might be ravenous or hungry all the time. There's, of course, ways around this. Don't worry. There's things you can do. But there's just all of these hormonal changes and other changes going on beneath the surface. So I really hope that this podcast episode gives you some insights into all of those different aspects of perimenopause. Probably a good thing to do, I think, first would be to check in with ourselves and work out if we actually are in perimenopause. So in terms of age, you're looking at a minimum age of about 38. Now, it can vary, of course, because you might go into menopause earlier than the average woman, or you might go into menopause later. So that's just a a rough guide. Remember, it's around that four to 12 year period before menopause. And the best thing to do actually is go and ask your mother if she's around and if that's possible, ask your mother about her menopause experience and when she started to feel that things were shifting and changing, when she noticed the body changes, when she noticed things like mental fog or difficulty concentrating, when did she notice all of those things starting to take place? And does she remember it all when her last period was? So minimum age 38. If I think about it in terms of the the women who've come in to see me over the years with perimenopause, I'm starting to see it more around the the middle 40s. So I'd say 43 onwards would be a typical sort of age where not coincidentally or so, there's a lot going on in these women's lives. And I can attest to this myself, got really busy in my 40s. I just found the process of mothering and parenting and working and maintaining a house and being there for my partner and trying to facilitate more learning because I'm always studying, always learning. There's a lot going on. So it's not really surprising that we would start to have some of these symptoms like irritability and tiredness coming up in the mid 40s. So we want to sort of look at it in terms of some familiar symptoms of perimenopause, but also exactly how many of them might you be experiencing at the moment and you know how much how much likelihood is there that you would be in perimenopause as opposed to just being overworked and stressed and not sleeping well. One of the key signs that I see is anxiety. Anxiety in perimenopause. That anxiety, I think, comes from having a lot on our plates as women these days having to carry many different roles in family and society and in the workplace as well. The anxiety may come also from perhaps not eating as well as we'd like to. So we may not be getting our usual level of nutrition that we would have previously when we had more time to do things for ourselves. And that's one thing that I find in the 40s, just time for myself. I don't know if you find this as well, but having or making time to do the beach walks and to read a book and sit by sit by the water or sit by the garden or something, you know, whatever you'd like to do to unwind. Sometimes it can feel like there's not enough time or space in the day. So I think I get definitely some anxiety from that. And there's also some irritability. The anxious or irritable are very key signs of perimenopause. And you'd want to be able to identify that it was anxiety and irritability that you wouldn't normally experience, but you're just noticing that it's creeping in and it's getting stronger and stronger, but not a lot of other things have changed in your in your daily life. With these cycles, most women will know what I mean by premenstrual syndrome, so a collection or a cluster of symptoms that can arise just before the bleed begins. Now, just because you're bleeding and having a regular cycle doesn't mean that you're not in perimenopause. You can be moving into the perimenopause phase and starting to get an exacerbation of the symptoms that occur just before the bleed. Think about the last five or six cycles that you've had and what were those symptoms that you were experiencing before each bleed? And did you notice that there was any intensification of those symptoms? The main ones will probably be the changes in mood. So mood can actually go quite flat. Some women, you know, we have different types of PMS, different ways that we can experience the mood changes. In perimenopause, some of the mood changes are more likely to be exacerbated than others. 
I would be looking for extra anxiety moving into a little bit of paranoia and fear. And I'd also be looking for the intensification of irritability, where you're starting to now get quite stroppy or quite short in the way that you're communicating, usually with family, just like a, you kind of hit your limit more quickly than you would previously. So that would be some of the changes I'd be looking for. Now sleep. Sleep can definitely be affected in perimenopause. Often it becomes a more restless sleep. It won't always manifest as sleep onset difficulties, but definitely sleep maintenance might occur now and then, and it may actually worsen before the bleed. So if you're having regular bleeds, you might find it more difficult to sleep in the day or the couple of days prior to the bleed, but you might be fine for the rest of the month. So for many women in perimenopause, I think this actually relates a lot to lifestyle. Being able to have an unwinding process in the evenings is very helpful because it can be the buildup throughout the day of anxiety and stress and pressure. And then you get to the night time and time to go to bed and it's really hard to unwind. And there's a period for our adrenal system around about the 9.30 p.m. mark where our adrenals can either just shut down and go into a restoration process and allow your body to sleep and rest. And sometimes if you push past that 9.30 time frame, so let's say you're more likely to be going to bed about 11.30, it does, I suspect, have a little bit of hormone production sacrifice going on there and just not allowing your adrenals to unwind completely. So what I often see in the clinic is that the sleep difficulties are things like waking up earlier than normal. To me, this really does signify an adrenal issue where the adrenal system is perking up and becoming too responsive and sensitive too early in the morning. And by that, I mean around about the 5.30, 6 o'clock mark. I know that you know, many of us, we try to get up super early sometimes. We want to exercise or go to the gym or meditate or get some things done in the morning. So, you know, that's sort of, that's different. This is more where you're waking up earlier than your alarm clock and then you're just lying there and you might be able to go back to sleep. But when you, when you actually do need to get up at seven o'clock or 6.30 or 7.30, you get out of bed and you just don't feel very good. You don't really feel like you've had the restoration you need. So really the key word there is restoration and I can see this pop up in perimenopause a lot where women just wake up and they're starting their day but they just don't feel like they have the resources because their bodies have not restored throughout the night. If the changes in sleep and the changes in mood, so things like the irritability, if they've been persisting for more than a couple of weeks and you can't see that it's tied to the period, so if it seems to be distinct from the menstrual bleed, then that's one of the signs of perimenopause. So just going over those sort of mood changes, sleep changes, what I would recommend doing is keeping a journal of the symptoms that you're experiencing and also rating the severity. What you're looking out for is ever increasing intensity. So you want to see the trend is for stress going towards anxiety, which then goes towards the paranoia and then goes towards the fear. You want to see that it's moving in that trajectory to be thinking this could be perimenopause. Because if you can see your symptoms come and go and they're sort of in and out, then it could just be a little bit of PMS or something like that. One of the key signs that I will see in perimenopause relates to fatigue and it's being tired. A little bit like iron deficiency, just tired all the time. Might be better in the mornings than in the afternoons, but the fatigue will really set in and often it will come with carbohydrate cravings or food cravings of some sort, or you just might feel like you need to eat more to get the energy, but you're not actually getting the energy from the food. So this is a whole other podcast within itself, the role of uh, insulin, leptin, ghrelin, cortisol, a whole host of metabolic hormones is involved in women feeling really tired and hungry all the time in perimenopause. So it would require a little bit more time um, to discuss that one. Certainly, it's something that you would see in perimenopause and you would want to note. 
and immediately have a look at things like your protein intake in your diet. Try to get a diet that is more protein rich. Look at your carbohydrate intake and try and get that down. And maybe also think about what are the foods I can eat that are very nutrient dense, very fiber rich as well. You know, you can actually get things like leptin resistant fibers. What are the sorts of foods that I can eat that are going to make me feel full? And I would just recommend a good protein powder is the very first port of call. With perimenopause, your menstrual cycles will tend to shorten. We have this ideal of a 28-day cycle. Can I just say that's not necessarily the normal for every woman. It's an ideal. So we tend to say, oh, I have a perfectly regular 28-day cycle. And that's great if you have a perfectly regular 28-day cycle. But it's also great if you have a regular 30-day cycle or a regular 26-day cycle. That's fine. So what happens in perimenopause is that you, whatever your regular day cycle was originally, it starts to reduce. So you might be going down from a 26-day cycle to a 24-day cycle, or you might be going from a 34-day cycle to a 28-day cycle. It's not necessarily meeting any ideal number of days in the cycle. It's noticing what is different for you. Where did your cycles used to be compared to where are they now? So have a look for shorter cycles. So a cycle, most of us will know this, but for anyone who's sort of wondering exactly what is Sulin talking about with a menstrual cycle um, in terms of the days. So day number one is when you wake up and you're bleeding. So it has to be a day where you wake up and you're already bleeding, not necessarily a day where you wake up and then you start bleeding at four o'clock in the afternoon. So it has to be the first day where you have a full day's bleed. That counts as day number one. And then you count day one, two, three onwards from there. And the next day, or sorry, the next time that you have a full day cycle, that becomes the new day one. So you just want to know how many days in between those two day, those two bleeding days. Oh, something else. The bleeds in perimenopause can become stop-start. They can also become really heavy, or they can sometimes become very light. Naturopathically speaking, this is a really good insight into what's happening with the hormones. And as I said before, hormones, they can be our signal markers in the body. They're telling us when something's not right or something's a bit out. So the really heavy bleeds that can often be estrogen related when estrogen begins to surge in the perimenopause, up and down. It's not constantly surging, but it's, um, it's doing something wild. And the lighter bleeds can be indication of the estrogen beginning to fall. With the stop-start, this is again just that erratic behavior of the hormones. There are things you can do, by the way, I always have my clients on hormone supporting herbs and supplements, and they seem to just do the job to help women get through the perimenopause without having you know, all of these terrible heavy periods and things like that. But lifestyle does play a role. So have a look at your lifestyle. If, you're, if your levels of stress and pressure, uh, if you're very frustrated or tired all the time, that sort of thing, if, if your lifestyle is contributing to those factors, it, uh, it absolutely will play a role in your experience of perimenopause. And you can support yourself as much as you can with food and supplements and herbs. But the lifestyle still, you know, it's, it's part of that root cause in a way. It's still playing a role in the pathology. So you're having a look at your cycles. You're looking at how many days is each cycle lasting for. You might also begin to take note of how many days is each bleed lasting for. Do the bleeds seem to come and then go and then come back again? Then you're having a look at whether the bleeds have become really heavy or really light. So when I say a really heavy bleed, we would on average expect to lose about 30 mils of pure blood in an average period. What can happen in perimenopause is the amount of blood that you lose can be such a volume that it becomes a little bit bewildering to think about going out or wearing anything white um, because you're always worried that you know, you're know you going to get this sort of overflow. So that's the sort of heavy that I mean. I don't just mean heavy as in you needed to wear an overnight pad for one day. I mean, you certainly might, but this is more the case where you might be layering pads or you might be afraid to go outside or go outdoors and do things socially because you just don't really trust that your period's going to be manageable. The libido in perimenopause, something very strange happens with libido. I would see this in um, a lot of women who come in to work on their perimenopause experience. So libido dropping would be another thing to look out for. 
This is again hormone related. Certainly estrogen and testosterone tend to be two of our strongest libido hormones and they can be compromised or they can uh, rise and fall in perimenopause, some more than others. Certainly as you get more towards the menopause time, the estrogen will significantly fall. So you would expect to see that libido would drop a little bit there too. There can also be some vaginal changes so you can get atrophy occurring and with atrophy comes less elasticity in the tissues, intercourse can be painful, um, there can be dryness and redness. So the libido on its own isn't just a psychological thing, it could be a physical thing as well. Breast changes can occur in perimenopause because of the high levels of estrogen that will tend to surge in perimenopause, going up and down but reaching heights that perhaps estrogen hasn't reached before in your body. So your breasts, as a result, can start to become more swollen. You can develop soreness in the breasts, maybe even pain in the breasts as well. So that's another one to look out for. A lot of women talk about hot flashes. Hot flashes and increased basal body temperature and night sweats as well, particularly night sweats occurring before each bleed or before certain bleeds. There's been evidence supporting the changes in estrogen, driving hot flashes. There's been evidence about luteinizing hormone as well. And food triggers, you know, anything in the diet that is hot and spicy and pungent has been associated with causing or triggering a hot flash. And the term hot flush just means the same thing. It's just written different ways in different parts of the world. So if you're experiencing these hot flashes, or if you're experiencing the night sweats, that can be quite indicative of perimenopause. Now, the last symptom here is one that I think compared to the others seems to cause the most stress for perimenopausal women. And it's the changing body shape and gaining weight. Despite the fact that your diet routines may not have changed, your exercise levels may not have changed, your intake of certain nutrients that may not have changed, but you just feel like this is now getting beyond control and you don't know what to do. And particularly gaining weight around the middle of the body, which brings women more into what we call an androgenic body style. So weight is being gained in the belly area. And there is this term, the menopot which has been coined to refer to the extra belly that women can develop, you and me, in menopause and perimenopause. This warrants a whole episode on its own. But I will say that there have been some really good research studies coming out on this. It's clearly an area where researchers are very interested and women are ready and willing to listen for a solution to this. So it's been quite easy finding evidence. There are certain diets that will be more useful for women who are experiencing this weight gain. The ketogenic diet has been suggested but needs to be tailored for you because it could potentially make matters worse. So I would probably say rather than going to extremes, have a look at your diet and make sure that you have a good protein intake and make sure that you're getting a lot of fiber in your diet. So they would be the two things that I would recommend. And I'd love to talk about this more go into it in a little bit more detail because there's just so much going on with the hunger hormones and the satiety hormones in the background too. And cortisol can play a role and thyroid hormones also can play a role in this. So with the weight gain, um, yeah, that would be the, the final symptom there. Now these, this is not an ep, sort of like the total list of perimenopause symptoms, but it's just the ones that I think you could sort of keep your awareness cap on and see if you're experiencing them and if you are experiencing them, make some notes and record the severity, the frequency and those sorts of things. So we've got feeling more anxious and irritable than usual. The mood changes before the menstrual period is becoming more intense, waking through the night, mood and sleep changes and anxiety, which are persisting for more than two weeks, feeling more tired than usual, having a change in the cycle. So the period cycles might be shortening compared to your normal. Or the bleeds might be coming heavier, lighter, changing in some way. Breasts becoming more sore and swollen, libido falling, gaining weight, um, even if your diet and exercise haven't changed, and experiencing hot flashes and experiencing night sweats before the periods. Technically, if you relate to more than three of those symptoms and they've been persisting for more than two weeks, then it is quite likely that you're in perimenopause. 
We think about perimenopause as a journey towards menopause where we're moving from fertile to infertile. It is interesting to think though that at the time that we are in our mother's uterus and we are developing throughout that gestational period, we are already reducing our fertility. So we have our maximum number of primordial follicles in our ovaries before birth. Once we're born, it reduces from 6 million to 600,000 follicles on average. And then by the time we get to menarche and we have our first period, this number of 600,000 follicles has halved to about 300,000. By the time we get to menopause, we have around 10,000 left. So in actual fact, the journey to reduced ovarian reserves begins before we're even born. So let's talk about the four stages of perimenopause. I'm basing this information on the stages of perimenopause on the work of Professor Gerilyn Pryor. So we begin with this period of time where periods are regular, but we see the progesterone starting to decline. This can occur around the mid-30s. It might be later, though. It doesn't have to be mid-30s, but that's probably the earliest point that it would start to emerge. So you're seeing this progesterone on a gradual decline, and this is known as more of the early perimenopause time. And then the periods will start to become a bit more irregular, moving into the time when a menstrual cycle starts to really stretch out. So you thought maybe, you know, 34 days was long and then 40 days and 48, and now it's been 60 days, or maybe now it's been a few months. This is sort of when you're getting into that late transition, moving closer to menopause. And then finally, when you reach a point where 12 months have elapsed since the last menstrual bleed, that's technically known as menopause. So in terms of the full menopausal transition, it begins with perimenopause and we don't really achieve menopause until it's been a full year since our last menstrual bleed. It's a sign that our ovaries have really wound down and at this point our adrenals have taken over the production of estrogen so they, they are now tasked with that because our ovaries aren't doing it. So we get these really big hormonal shifts occurring. At the same time, maybe changes in the family, social roles, our body composition is, you know, changing. Sometimes work can be changing as well. So it's quite likely that there are still symptoms that we're sort of dealing with from perimenopause, even though we've technically reached menopause. But the science tells us that uh, the symptoms of perimenopause will not go on forever. Uh, there might be some rare cases where perimenopause symptoms will persist, but in most cases, it's going to be just the vaginal dryness that will persist afterwards. But the other things like the sleep problems, emotional irritability and so on, they, they should pass when the perimenopause has completed. We also think about perimenopause and menopause being caused by hormones. So our hormones are always operating in our bodies. We, we would never really be without hormones. And it's not that we're getting hormones building up either. Now that could be the case if you have some issues with detoxifying your hormones or liver problems, or you have a condition where you, you might build up a certain hormone. But really, I think a good way to think about perimenopause and menopause is it's the sudden disappearance of hormones. So the hormones do go crazy in perimenopause, particularly estrogen. So they will fluctuate. When you get to menopause, it's like a, just a sudden disappearance of hormones. So if you relate it back to the menstrual cycle as well, early on in the menstrual cycle, it's kind of like the springtime, you know, you're creating lots of follicles, all of your hormones are pulsing, everything's, you know, well and good and you're building your body up and then you get to sort of mid-cycle with luteinizing hormone, this triggers ovulation and your skin will be glowing and your hair will be growing and you'll just be feeling, you know, good and stable mentally. Then you get to the week before the next bleed. Now that week before the bleed is technically when the hormones are going into a deficiency state. So your estrogen and progesterone will naturally be falling by this stage. And it's kind of a little bit like the move into menopause where you've gone from having really good levels of hormones to hormones that are just depleted or disappearing. And it's also a changing composition of the hormone types. Did you know, for instance, that we have at least 17 different types of estrogen that have been identified in women's bodies. And we know that estradiol, E2, is the one that really is more dominant in your fertile years. And then when you come into menopause, it's E1, estrone, which becomes more dominant. 
And estrone isn't as strong as estradiol. So we will feel like, you know, even if we have enough estrogen, it might not be the type of estrogen that gives us as much pain relief or that gives us more stress tolerance or that regulates our blood glucose really well. It might be E1, which has a much weaker estrogenic effect. So we have this hormone deficiency state and we start doing things like forgetting what we've done because our brains might also be feeling a little bit estradiol deficient. We might not have as great libido because our bodies are feeling, again, estradiol deficient. So perimenopause is kind of like a hormone withdrawal syndrome. Um, thankfully, we do eventually go into postmenopause, which is where our bodies have found, finally, this new equilibrium and symptoms will begin to subside. Postmenopause is a lot less chaotic, so you can think of it as coming out the other side from your hormone withdrawal episode. In fact, scientists believe that by the time we reach postmenopause, our brain and our cells in our bodies have developed this, you know, as I said before, this metabolic flexibility that enables them to operate really well on reduced estrogen and progesterone. So we've come to acclimatize to this new uh, hormonal landscape in our bodies. So I think it's important to think about perimenopause as a process or transition period. It's a journey towards postmenopause. In Chinese medicine, they call it the second spring. In the West, we call it the second puberty. So we acknowledge that it is a time of hormonal fluctuations, but we're moving towards the second spring or second puberty. Because when we do reach that postmenopause, um, and I want to really assure you that you know you're, this is what you're moving towards, you will find that your cognitive, hormonal, and metabolic health are finally starting to calm down. You're settling in and uh, really developing a lot more flexibility. While some women may continue to experience perimenopausal symptoms, for most of us, it's um, probably going to be diminishing at postmenopause. So let's have a look now at what's happening with these hormones. You know, you could be sort of wondering why would hormones like estradiol and progesterone become depleted at all? You know, they're here in one life stage and then in the next life stage, they're gone. And um, suddenly we're just not operating in the same way. So let's talk about each of these and have a look at the hormones from estrogen to progesterone and also talk about some of the hormone depleting influences that you might have present in your life that you could work on to help you to retain your hormones. So really we're, we're trying to say, okay, how can we best retain our hormones? The hormones estrogen and progesterone, they are predominantly involved in reproduction. Estrogen is also a multi-system hormone. So we know that we have estrogen playing a role in our cognitive function, in our metabolism, in our nervous system and pain sensitivity, as well as, of course, what estrogen is doing in our reproductive system. And estrogen is the hormone that throughout your fertile years will make your skin glow, it will make your hair look really healthy, it will make you feel mood-wise a little bit more positive, more motivated. It can also build your stress tolerance and your pain tolerance. And it can help to regulate your levels of blood glucose which will calm down your cravings. If you do get sugar cravings and those sorts of things, it will calm them down. This is also why a lot of women in their fertile years will develop their sugar cravings after ovulation, because it's after ovulation when estrogen will fall. And the higher your estrogen levels, the more there is to fall. So for women with estrogen dominant conditions, those sugar cravings can become a bit crazy in the second half of the menstrual cycle. But back to perimenopause, you know, we, we kind of get to this stage in perimenopause where estrogen will, in our bodies, naturally try to work a little bit harder because, you know, it's feeling like reproductive capacity is starting to reduce and it's what's called the last hurrah. Estrogen will really start to surge. This can be very problematic. Despite the fact that estrogen does wonderful things for your skin and your hair and for your mood, estrogen, when it gets really high, can make you feel a little bit out of control. So what I often do is the saliva testing for estrogen and progesterone and the other reproductive hormones, and then I just assess them to see where are they going at this moment in time and where could you be placed within that perimenopause phase. So progesterone, progesterone's main role is to facilitate pregnancy. It affects many body systems as well. So I mentioned before that estrogen plays a role in mood and cognition and 
other aspects of our health. Progesterone does the same thing as well. In fact, it's one of the best brain healers that we have. So progesterone is often thought of just for pregnancy, but it really is essential for menstrual health in general. It will help with things like uh, implantation. It will help with the control of the period bleed when it comes out so that the blood doesn't gush out, that sort of thing. And it's it really is, I would have to describe it as the hormone with the most tempered and graceful decline throughout perimenopause. It begins to steadily reduce in early perimenopause and you see progesterone on this decline that's quite steady, but LH, FSH, E2, they're a bit all over the place. You will notice some changes when your progesterone levels are beginning to fall. One of the signs is headaches, which can sometimes become migraines. Because progesterone is very relaxing and it has a calming effect on our mind, when it starts to fall, you might see anxiety, fear, depression, tension setting in. So there you get some of those, just like a reduced nervous system function, or you're not feeling as strong or resilient or robust in your nervous system response. So that can be one of the things to look out for. And again, I will do the saliva progesterone testing as part of my perimenopausal screening. There are a couple of other hormones worth talking about. One is FSH. This is the acronym for follicle stimulating hormone, and it acts on your ovaries. What the FSH will do is stimulate the follicles in your ovaries to mature and develop, hopefully being able to achieve a really healthy um, egg, which can be ovulated and then fertilized. So it's going to be trying really, really hard to increase your fertility potential prior to perimenopause. FSH again is on its last hurrah. It's really trying to get the last baby out of the body. I suppose that's a very crude way of saying it. So, you know, it's funny, isn't it? But I just sometimes think our bodies are so, they're really primordial, you know? They're just, they want these primal things. So whether you've had a baby or not, your FSH levels will start to climb in perimenopause. And it's one of the indicating factors. I think it's not uh, in the medical arena anyway. It's not really regarded as a, good measure of perimenopause for diagnostics because it gets quite erratic but you will see trends over a period of time so if you're noticing over a period of time that your fsh levels are constantly really 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 elevated and i'm not talking about twice as much as normal i'm talking about maybe 30 times what it was in your fertile years um, so if you start to see those sorts of trends then it's a pretty good sign that fsh is signaling to you this is the uh, the final chance and let's try and get these eggs out. Now, luteinizing hormone is a stimulatory hormone. It plays a role in ovulation, so it usually will begin to pulse and reach its pulsatile peak around the middle of the cycle. This is what people will refer to as that 14-day ovulatory peak and so on. So the production of progesterone also is highly dependent on LH because if you don't ovulate, you won't go on to produce progesterone. So that can be really problematic if there are issues with LH. So LH will drop in perimenopause, but it does a little dance first before it starts a steady decline. So along with progesterone, this one actually has a pretty steady decline in late menopause. And um, also it's beginning to go up and down in perimenopause. It will actually plummet in menopause and it will finally come to its most uh, steady and controlled fall in postmenopause. LH can be tested as well. So all of these hormones, FSH, LH, estrogen, progesterone can be very accurately tested with saliva testing. And it's, it's probably good. You can also actually do the urine testing, the dried urine testing. I think it's good to have a few tests done because things are really so erratic and changeable throughout perimenopause. So we've talked about, you know, these hormones and the roles that they play in the body and I guess why they would start to decline in perimenopause and then move on to their lowest levels in menopause. If your ovaries are not capable of producing healthy eggs, then you know the, the other parts of your reproductive system are going to respond accordingly and hormones will drop, things like that. So you've got this last hurrah, this crazy dance, and then it's all a steady decline from there on.
One of the things that I'm always screening for when I work with women who might be going through the perimenopause is that yes, we can see the hormones are reducing, but maybe we need to think about other factors that might be burning out your hormones. So are there other reasons why the estrogen may be falling or other contributors to low progesterone that we could address so that we can modulate and maximize or should I maybe better say optimize the levels of those hormones as we move through perimenopause. So I'm looking for any sort of mechanisms in the body leading to hormone burnout. So I want to talk about some of these and please make a note if you think that any of these symptoms relate to you because they're actually all things that you can work on. So I call them hormone depleting influences. The first one is when you have stress that has persisted for more than three months. And this is stress that has an impact on your enjoyment of daily life, sometimes your ability to do things through the day, but you might find that you're a high-functioning stress head, so you're able to get everything done, but you can never totally relax and you're constantly feeling tense in your body. And I look out for things like people who move their hands or their feet all the time, fidgeting, and also people who express that they're feeling overwhelmed. That word overwhelm is such a loaded, powerful word. It doesn't come from nowhere. When people do feel that stress is getting to that level where it's hard to manage, they will tend to use that word. So I always sort of look out for the words that people are using to describe how they're feeling. So that's stress more than three months. So technically in naturopathy, actually, any symptom that extends more than three months, we would label that as a chronic symptom. Now, the second thing is uh, in terms of hormone depleting is over-exercising or under-eating. So I know that there's going to be some weight changes occurring in perimenopause and menopause. Over-exercising is going to deplete your hormone levels and it's going to sort of bring all of those symptoms on a lot more quickly because remember with menopause and perimenopause, we're talking about a lot of hormone changes. And by the time we hit menopause, it's hormone depletion. So you're almost if you're over-exercising and your body weight is too low, or you're under-eating and your body weight is too low, then you're bringing yourself to that hormone depletion state more quickly. So you want to get your BMI basically not below 18.5, but also not too high. So just, just keeping an eye on the exercise. And of course, tune into your body because your body might really thrive on exercise. So maybe then you just need to be eating more protein or eating more to make up for the exercise that you're doing. So the third thing is um, kind of like when we swing the other way now to high cholesterol, high LDL, high triglycerides. With high cholesterol, it really is not unusual for women in perimenopause to start to see changes in their cholesterol results where the total cholesterol and the LDL, the low density lipoproteins, are starting to gradually increase. So that's not abnormal. The other thing that can happen is that if you have hereditary high cholesterol, so if it's in the family, then you might be in a situation where no matter what you do with your diet and your supplements, it's going to be very hard to get your cholesterol levels down. And so there's a couple of reasons why women may struggle with high cholesterol anyway. But what I'm looking at here more is, is your diet contributing to increases in cholesterol levels? Are you eating too many fatty foods, too many sugars, too many saturated fats? And so if you can see that your diet is imbalanced, then it's an explanation for why the cholesterol levels might be rising. And it could also be adding to some of the issues with your hormones because the high cholesterol, the high LDL, they're not particularly good forms of cholesterols. The triglycerides usually can be traced back to the diet, a diet which is very high in carbohydrates and sugars and and fatty foods. So if you've got elevated triglycerides, you know, go go to your diet and Maybe come and see me. We'll get you onto a diet protocol that's going to be really helpful for you. You need really good quality um, fatty acids to build your hormones. So things like omega-3, the DHAs, the EFAs and EPAs. Um, EFAs is basically just essential fatty acids. So you need really good quality fatty acids to build good quality hormones rather than just fats that are going into your body and then creating more fat. And um, then we've got eating disorders, history of eating disorders, which can deplete your hormones to a degree. And you'd want to get some guidance on that one. Naturopaths can help to a degree, I guess. But um, if it's a very severe eating disorder, it would require some medical attention. 
The reason why eating disorders will contribute to hormone depletion is that it's the intake of nutrients is either too low or the nutrients are not good quality or not the right sort of nutrients to be able to build hormones. And you'll be feeling just generally undernourished. So then there's smoking. Smoking can deplete hormones. Tendency to worry, fear, and anxiety can also deplete hormones. And we're looking at more of the helpful hormones that we're depleting. Because with worry, fear, and anxiety, you might be sacrificing those really good hormones to instead produce stress hormones. So, you know, it's kind of like you've got a certain pull from which your hormone production can occur, and your body has to choose which hormones are going to be most useful for you at the time. And if you're really stressed out, it's not going to be producing, you know, pregnancy hormones or fertility hormones. It's going to be producing survival hormones. And often those survival hormones. They lay down fat depositions in our bodies and reduce our circulation and make us very alert. So if you're noticing the worry, the fear, anxiety, vigilance, those are some common symptoms that over time will deplete the hormones. Then we have menstrual cycles where you don't ovulate. So obviously, if you are having a menstrual cycle, you will be producing your estrogen fairly well, um, your FSH. But if your LH is not good and your progesterone is not good, then you're not really getting that whole balanced menstrual process. And we do need the progesterone to balance out the estrogen as well. So a menstrual cycle where you're not bleeding, having very light bleeds, or you know that, you're, that you've got too much estrogen compared to progesterone or if something is going on like that, that can be a trigger as well and contribute to hormone depletion. Now, thyroid disease is another reason for hormone depletion. This could be overactive thyroid or underactive thyroid, so either of them. Elevated cortisol levels or adrenal exhaustion that is running in the background. Wow, so many people have really tight adrenals and elevated cortisol levels. Please don't feel guilty if this is you. This is the world that we live in now. You know, it's a very stressful world for many women. So elevated cortisol levels and adrenal problems can easily be managed and supported with herbs and nutrients and some lifestyle changes as well. One of the things I found really helpful is um, Vedic meditation. So my, my best friend, Lee, she gifted me a Vedic meditation course just after my father died. And I feel like it just um, really helped me to get a sense of ease in my body again. And certainly things like um, different therapies, psychotherapy. I remember doing a lot of primal therapy with Marie Burroughs after my mother died. She was beautiful. They were both beautiful. But certainly therapy has its place, you know, really, really amazing for processing that sort of grief. But the stress, the stress, I remember feeling really, really anxious. And I did this Vedic meditation training and it took um, about four days and it was really quite life-changing. So maybe if this is you with the elevated cortisol levels and adrenal exhaustion, maybe just have a look at a, a bit of a stress plan, stress reduction plan. I can do protocols for this. I'd love to work with you on this. Um, certainly something that I work a lot with. I think also you might find that that sort of elevated cortisol might be contributing to weight gain as well. So there might be a bit of that in the picture. So some other things that can contribute to hormone depletion are conditions where you do end up with quite strong and noticeable symptomatic hormonal imbalances. One of them is polycystic ovarian syndrome. If you've recently had chemotherapy or removal of the ovaries, this can lead to more of an intense hormone depletion state. So the removal of ovaries, the oophorectomy, that sort of process, if you've had that done, and then also diets which are really low in cholesterol and low in fat, and I'm talking about the good fats and the good cholesterols. Um, so healthy foods like avocados and eggs, nuts and seeds are going to give you really good sources of fats and cholesterols. If your diet's really low in those sorts of foods, then you might not be giving your body the base cholesterol units that it needs to build its hormones. And then if you have high prolactin hormone levels or breast tenderness, breast swelling, Similarly, if you have, you know, um, uneven estrogen levels, so high estrogen in comparison to progesterone, that can be a problem. But high prolactin is something I see in polycystic ovarian syndrome as well. So it could be part and parcel of that picture. 
A daily coffee intake in Caucasian women has been found to deplete hormones. And there are so many herbal alternatives that you can get these days. So consider something like a dandelion latte or a mushroom latte as an alternative to coffee. And of course, you know, green tea could be the next step down from the coffee and then you work your way on from there. And chronic sleep disturbance is another hormone depleting influence. So take a minute and just see how many of those potential hormone depleters you might have. You could be losing more estrogen and progesterone than you really need to. And what I often will will focus on in treatments is to find out what the obstacles are to cure. So what are those sort of uh, those adverse influences and then step by step working through reducing them. So in summary, stress that persists for more than three months, over-exercising or under-eating, leading to a low BMI, anything less than 18.5, having high cholesterol, high LDL, or high triglycerides on your lipid profile. So that's when you go to the doctor and you get your cholesterol checked. They'll do a lipid profile. An eating disorder or a history of one, smoking, tendency to worry, fear, anxiety, and vigilance. Menstrual cycles with no ovulation, so no, possibly no bleeds um, there as well. Thyroid disease, overactive thyroid or underactive thyroid. Elevated cortisol levels, adrenal problems, including adrenal exhaustion, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Recently having removed the ovaries or having had chemotherapy. Having a diet that is low in fat, low in cholesterol, healthy versions of those, of course having high prolactin, having a daily coffee intake and issues with your sleep for more than, say, a few months. So those are some of the issues there. If you do think that, you know, you're resonating with a lot of the symptoms of perimenopause, just know that it can be overwhelming, but you're not alone. As women, we will all go on this journey to the second spring. When we get there, we will have a huge party. Um, We all have our own personal experience and some of us, you know, won't express uh, even all of the symptoms or many of the symptoms that I've talked about, but some of us will experience them all. It just, it's very variable, but I think there's always a lot that you can do to support your body, your mind, um, your physiology through this process. And, you know, the more we talk about it, the more that we hang out together in women's groups and the more we're in community, the more we feel like we have support from our sisters and do reach out for help if you feel like perimenopause is just turning your life upside down and you really want to grab this opportunity work on your hormone balance your nutritional intake your feelings of well-being your sleep your mood your hair your skin whatever it might be feel free to reach out you know where you can find me all of my links are in the show description i hope that this was useful for you everybody As usual, thank you for tuning in to Well Woman. Have a beautiful day and I'll see you in another episode. Hey everybody, please know that the information, opinion and advice provided in this podcast are not intended to replace professional medical care. They are for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not always be those of the host. Thanks for listening.